The first segment that I did about Bible and politics, I really made one main point, which is that the Bible has a whole lot to say about government and politics. The main way that the Bible talks about government and politics is king, kingdom, kings, things like that. And I mentioned that those phrases show up over 2,500 times in the Bible. And hell, sheol, various versions of that, it's more like 61 times. So obviously, where we go after we die is of great importance, but that's not the main thing the Bible talks about. The main thing the Bible talks about is life. And we talked about how politics, by definition, is the way people organize and influence one another. So we tend to think of politics as that part of organizing and influencing that we hate. That's what we tend to think of as politics. But politics is actually just organizing and influencing. It's, it's in the broadest sense of the word how people interact with one another. If we're going to do anything other than just live in silos, this is what we do. And religion is, by definition, the beliefs around which people organize. So you cannot separate religion and politics. If you're going to organize at all, you're going to organize around some set of commonly held beliefs. If you don't have a set of commonly held beliefs, then there's going to be a conflict until you do. That's just the way life operates. And if you look in human history, that's what happens. You have conflict, and then you have some harmony around some beliefs, and then people organize, and they influence, and then things change. The two things are inseparable. In our time, and in our era, we have the influence of Marxism, which is only about 100 years old, I guess it was 150 from the initial phases of it. But the Marxists are very, very ingenious at warping and abusing and twisting definitions. And what they've done is defined religion as any belief other than their belief. And then they have said religion and politics don't mix. Which means the only effective way to organize is to organize around their beliefs. All other organization is illegitimate. It's quite ingenious if you think of it. And so they have nothing but a political agenda. And their belief, of course, is what's called dialectical materialism, which is the idea that matter has come to know itself, and then whoever climbs to the top of matter knowing itself should have power over everything else, and that happens to be them. So that's what they do. And they spend their time trying to gain power over everybody else. As a result of their devotion to that top subject, they're extremely good at it. But the Bible has a different reality. And the Bible proposes a system of governance that, for, that is in the best interest of mankind. That is self-governance. That's the Bible's way of, of us having the maximum harmony and mutual benefit. Now, that is not actually the ideal form of government from the standpoint of Scripture. The ideal form of government is a kingdom with a perfect king. Uh, A king that has all power and all benevolence. That's the ideal government. But what's the problem with that ideal form of government? Yeah, there's not any perfect people other than Jesus himself. So, meanwhile, while we're waiting for Jesus to come and take that spot, which he will, we don't want to have that. In fact, our founders were very articulate about this. In the Federalist Papers, one of them says something to the effect of, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. 
So we do need government and we don't have perfect kings, notwithstanding the claims of many over the eons of history. And so what the Bible proposes is self-governance. Now, self-governance is actually what we do in America. It's so familiar to us that we don't know what it is. We don't talk about it. We do it, but we don't talk about it. Generally speaking, the more ingrained something is in you, the less you think about it and the more oriented you are towards not conceiving that there's any other possible way. The best example I know of this is standing in line. I had a friend in college whose summer job was at a theme park. And his job was to wave cars into a a line with a green light. You know, one of the parking booths that has a green light that no no other cars were in. Because everybody would automatically go to the lines where there were a bunch of cars. And if there was a booth with no cars in it, there's no line to stand in, so nobody knew what to do. So he would wave them over, this one's open. Because what do we do? We stand in line. And do you go and you think to yourself, does it make any sense to stand in line? No, you just do it. You stand in line. And if you go to an international airport, what you will immediately notice is no one's standing in line. They just butt right in, right in front of you. Because other cultures don't stand in line. They They just push ahead. And we do it as, yeah, if you just take your turn, everything goes a lot faster, right? And no one thinks about it. You just do it. Well, that's, that's our culture, and that's self-governance. You, you know, there's no law that you have to stand in line, but try not doing it and see what happens. <laughs> Informal enforcement is way more powerful than formal enforcement. But that's because we're a self-governing culture. Well, the Bible's the, where that comes from. And self-governance has three pillars. And what I want to do today is talk about one of those pillars. But first, just a little overview of self-governance. Self-governance really starts all the way back in Genesis, the, the way God interacts with Adam and Eve. And God's always trying to get us to move towards self-governance. But the most explicit example of it is the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, the first big thing that God does to organize the people, remember politics is a way of organizing and influencing. So he's got to organize these people who have been slaves for 400 years. And so he's got to get a new mindset because you don't have somebody standing over you telling you what to do. You know, it's common for someone to get out of prison and not know how to make a simple decision. Because they haven't made one for such a long time. Uh, My friend uh, Bob Fu, who came from China, told me one time that when he got here, they went to the grocery store and they stood in front of the grape display just paralyzed. Because there's 17 different kinds of grapes. And how do you choose? On what basis do you know which one to pick? Because they had never encountered that decision before. And and so when you have a slave mentality and people don't know how to decide, you have to go through a change of thinking. So the big first big thing God does is he brings them to Mount Sinai. And this is the first big pillar of self-governance, the one we're going to talk about today. The rule of law. 
God institutes law. When you've got a master that tells you everything you're going to do, you don't need law. You're going to get up in the morning, you're going to make bricks. You have a certain quota of bricks. You use a certain amount of clay, a certain amount of straw. This is what you eat. This is what, where you'll live. What decisions need to be made? The very opposite of slavery is freedom. Freedom means I get to choose. Anytime someone takes away your choices and says someone else is going to choose for you, they're bringing Egypt into your life. You don't get to choose. Some master is going to choose. So God brings in rule of law, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The other two main pillars you can see throughout this exodus. And the second one is when they get to the edge of the promised land, God says, choose for yourself judges whom you trust to make decisions about right and wrong. Disputes between yourself. People you trust. Choose for yourself judges. Now this is interesting. This is dispersed decision making based on consent of the governed. God could have said, I'm choosing these people. And he does that with prophets to tell them his word. But when it comes to making decisions, he says, you choose. And consent of the governed is kind of the basis for all human organizations. The third thing is, the pillar is private property. After they take the high ground and they disperse into the tribes, God divvies up into 12 parcels and have them draw lots and deeds that property to them all the way down to the family level. And private property then becomes the basis of the whole economic system in Israel. So rule of law, dispersed decision-making based on consent of the governed, and private property. Those are the three big pillars of self-governance. Throughout history, you typically have not had any of those in any society. The vast majority of human history, and including today, you don't have societies based on rule of law the way God defines it. You have it based on rule of man. You don't have dispersed decision-making based on consent of the governed. You have centralized decision-making based on the power of the strong man. And you don't have private property. You have state-sanctioned possession. And that's true on the vast majority of the geography today. And in fact, it is my belief... The reason the earth can hold 8 billion people instead of, say, 2 is because of the self-governance influence of the United States on the world. I can't prove that because I don't know what would have happened. But as we go through this, hopefully I'll show show you some things that uh, will support that notion. So today, rule of law. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20. And here we are at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God brought the children of Israel out of slavery. It's a wonderful picture of salvation. When we believe in Jesus, we are freed from the oppressive 
mastery of sin. And what we do, and what the whole book of Romans is about, what we do is constantly say, golly, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to live in sin because they have really good onions. I want to live in sin because there I don't have as much difficulty, or at least the difficulty I have there is different than the difficulty I have here. And this picture that God sets up, this is us. So everything we do here with Israel and Egypt is applicable to us spiritually. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So, in Egypt, you had an authority. Who was the authority in Egypt? Pharaoh was the authority in Egypt. Who owned the property in Egypt? Pharaoh. How do we know that? Joseph caused that to happen. They all sold their property and themselves to Pharaoh to stay alive. It's very interesting. Tyranny was the rule of law in Egypt, courtesy of Joseph. How was life dictated in Egypt? It was dictated by the Pharaoh. And what did the Pharaoh claim about his moral authority or her moral authority? It was divine. That's right. Who was divine? The Pharaoh himself was divine or herself. There were some female Pharaohs, at least in terms of who had actual power. So you've got the divine Pharaoh and a whole plethora of other gods to whom they would point and say, my authority comes from here. So who made the rules? Pharaoh. What's the moral authority for those rules? All these gods, including the Pharaoh himself. You shall not bow down or serve them. You shall not listen to their laws, listen to my laws. This is kind of the starting place for the nation of Israel. And what we're going to see is that God's notion of the rule of law is embedded right here in the Ten Commandments. And it starts with one key concept. And that is God gets to make the rules. God gets to make the rules. Just God. He's the only one that gets to make. You can summarize everything I just read into one statement. God gets to make the rules. Now, does that stop people from trying to make rules themselves that go against God's rules? No, no, it doesn't stop them at all. As a matter of fact, maybe it even spurs them on. But the reality is, God makes the rules, and God made the cause-effect impact of those rules. And he says in here, I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children of those who hate me. And I could paraphrase that as to say, I'm going to build a time lag in. I'm going to wait till the third and fourth generation. Maybe they'll repent. But if you don't follow my way, there's going to be consequences, and they're going to be really severe. 
Because I, I'm not only making these rules, I made the world where it operates this way. See, the seventh day is a constant reminder of that, isn't it? Why did he say honor the seventh day? Because I made everything you see, and I did it in six days, and then I stopped. And then I said to you, let's see what you can do within this framework that I've made. It's a way of honoring God as creator. And God gets to make all the rules. So the first big aspect of the rule of law is God gets to make the rule of law. And anytime we have a set of rules, if you will, that are based on anything other than what God says, we're going to have negative impact. The second half of the Ten Commandments have to do with how we organize and influence one another. And what's the word for that? Politics. So the first part is religion. And you can summarize religion in one statement. God gets to make the rules. The Lord God, the Creator God, the true God. And you can summarize the second half in one word, politics, and in one statement. Interact and influence one another the way I tell you to. And how is that? Honor your father and mother that your days may be long on the land which the Lord's God has given you. See, I built in to this system that if you have strong families, it will bless your country. If you have strong families, it will bless your country. The real root organizing unit of any healthy society is strong and sound families. You know what the fundamental problem has been throughout history for societies? The fundamental problem? Beta males. You see, in our society, we've taken the idea that God made family and yet should have one husband, one wife, and one family. We've embraced that in our society. Very rare in history. In history, what you have is alpha males. And the women go to the alpha males. They get the women. What do the beta males get? Each other. So what do they do? They become marauding bands and rape and pillage. That's the only way they can get women. So what do you have? A very violent and unstable society. What's happening in our culture is there's a big push to reinstate the alpha male who can have all the women he wants. Anytime you see the family under attack, that is because somebody and we'll see who that is soon, wants tyranny instead of a healthy society where there's dispersed decision-making. Well, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. Don't kill each other. You know, all violence ultimately ends in murder. It's, it's, the, it's either the prequel to murder or it's the root cause of murder, and that's what violence is. So don't don't have a society organized around violence. Why do we have violence? Why do your children get violent at you and scream at you? Because they're not getting their way. So who makes the laws in your house? You do as parents, right? And, and do, the, do the kids say, I'm good with that? Yeah, so this is a fundamental problem, right? But if you can honor father and mother, then you can transfer and honor God's law. See how this works? And so... Honor father and mother is a way to institute a society that's based on rule of law. 
And rule of law is the first and main pillar of self-governance. And that's God's way for maximum benefit for a society. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. What's the best way to break up families? Sexual immorality, right? You either don't have one. The alpha male gets 15 women. And the beta males don't get any. Uh, Or you have a family and you tempt someone out of it with adultery. Don't have adultery. Don't steal. Well, this is embedded, a notion that private property is one of the other big pillars. But private property kind of has a pretty broad concept is that when someone has a sphere of influence, you don't just go coerce it away from them. There's a respect here. There's a respect that says, I honor who you are by honoring what you have. I honor who you are by honoring the space you occupy. I'm not going to invade your space and violate your person, and I'm not going to invade your space and violate your relationship with your spouse, and I'm not going to invade your space and violate your possessions. Why? Because I respect you. You see how this is setting up a society with mutual respect. Not because a taskmaster is standing over me with a whip enforcing it, but because I believe this is true and I choose to operate on it. Because ultimately, as we'll see, rule of law is something that emanates from within our heart. And this rule of law, God's law, is consistent with the way God made us. So we know it's true and right. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. And don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. So what kind of society does this describe? If we have this society where children obey their parents and no one ever screams at the restaurant because they're not getting what they want, If you have a society with no homicides and no assaults, you have a society without adultery, no divorce, you have a society where there's no theft, no burglary, you have a society where everyone tells the truth, there's never a lie, politicians stand up and tell you who they are and really what they're going to do, and then go do it, and no one's jealous or wants anybody else's stuff. What kind of society is that? Amish. (laughs) Well, actually, it is the Amish ideal. But this society, this I mean, he didn't say that we will have no stickers in the yards, but I mean, it's almost just a perfect place other than that. But contrast this with what we saw in Egypt. A word, by the way, that occurs in the Bible over 600 times. Egypt. And generally the thing is, I took you out of Egypt, don't go back to Egypt, and don't trust in Egypt. Is kind of the notion about what you get from Egypt. Well, what was Egypt like? Remember when Abraham went down into Egypt, he told Sarah, tell them you're my sister, which was technically true. She was like a half-sister. Tell them you're my sister. Remember why he said, tell them you're my sister? So they won't kill me and take you into the harem. Nice place, huh? King wants your wife? Don't worry about those beta males just chop our heads off. And I'll take your wife. Leviticus 18 says, Don't do what you saw in Egypt. And then it starts describing all these behaviors. Don't have sex with your mom. 
or your stepmom, or your sister, or your stepsister, or your aunt, or everybody else, (laughs) or the animals. It's just like apparently just total debauchery rampant, which of course is going to debase the family. Remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Potiphar's wife got him landed in prison. Why? She wanted to seduce him and he said, no, how dare you? That's not the way we do things in Egypt. Don't you understand? The magicians, the occult, the sorcerers, forced slavery. You know, in the Levitical law, it says you will have no slaves among yourselves. If someone gets destitute and has to sell themselves to pay off their debts, you shall not make that perpetual. Once they get the debt paid off, they got to go back. We're not having slavery. Slavery has been the, no, the, the norm for man in all of human history until like the 1870s or something like that. I mean, it, 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 it's what, but not in Egypt. Because slavery doesn't fit a self-governing organization, isn't it? What, what did I say? Not in Israel. Thank you. Egypt is slavery. The definition of slavery. Not in Israel. Because Israel is a self-governing nation. You can't have slavery and self-governance. It doesn't fit. Infanticide. Remember what happened when they wanted to slow down the Jewish population? We'll just kill the babies. No problem. So... Isn't that pretty much the opposite of everything in here? You don't honor your father and mother, you have sex with them. You you, you murder when it's convenient. You you commit adultery at the drop of a hat. You take other people's stuff. You steal their lives. It's no problem. It doesn't say anything. I didn't give you an example of false witness. But it's a covetous and oppressive society. Isaiah 31 has a very interesting picture. It says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're not very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel. See, this is actually setting up a contrast. We can either have Egypt or we can have self-governance. We can either have the rule of man based on some moral authority that's external to the Creator God, or we can have self-governance because the people humbled themselves before the Creator God. You know, the exile of Israel to Babylon, which is one of the most pervasive uh, narratives in the Bible, and, and it has a whole lot to do with the books of the Bible, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, all these books that are about the exile and the return. The reason God put that judgment on them was because they had a contract with Babylon that they broke because they thought Egypt would protect them better in direct violation of this. And what they're saying is, we're not going to keep our word because we trust in the power of man. And they're violating exactly what God told them not to do. Because ultimately, self-governance is based on Spiritual humility. If you don't have spiritual humility, you can't have self-governance. I have a whole lot of of activity in the political arena. But I always operate understanding that if there's not a spiritual revival, there'll be no political restoration of self-governance. The two go together. Well, in Exodus 20.20, God says something very interesting. 
In verse 18 it says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And the people saw it. So this, this is where God's giving all these commands. And they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Now it's natural to be afraid of death. Don't you agree with that? If you saw a mountain, if you had come out of Egypt and you saw a mountain and it was doing all these things, it would freak you out a little bit, wouldn't it? You'd be a little concerned, especially if God had told you, don't even step foot on this mountain or you'll die. And you had seen the Egyptian army die in the Red Sea and you had seen the plagues. I mean, you understand that God's not someone to be trifled with. So it's like, just, just talk to us yourself. We don't want to die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, and that His fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. What? What, did the, what were the people afraid of? Dying. What does God tell them to be afraid of? Sinning. See, death's not that big a deal. It's just walking through a door. It's going from one room of our existence to another room of our existence. That's not that big a deal to fear, Fear, God says. But sin, now, whoa! Yeah, you better really be afraid of that. Why? Oh, because I built in these really bad consequences for that. And you're my people. I don't want you to have that. See, I've taken you out of bondage. Why should you go back into it? I've given you the freedom to go back into it. But do you really want to do that? Really? No, no, no. I, I, I want to put an indelible mark on you to understand sin is death. It's the kind of death to be afraid of. Physical death, yeah, whatever. Not that big a deal. Don't be afraid of death. Be afraid of sin. Yeah, there's, two, there's multiple kinds of fear. Don't fear Egypt. Don't feel fear Pharaoh. Fear God. You know, the apostles kind of said this when they're before the Jewish Sanhedrin. When the Jewish Sanhedrin says, Go and stop. You can go. We're not going to throw you in prison. But stop talking about this name, Jesus. And the apostles say, well, you decide who we ought to fear the most. Your word or God's? We're going to talk about that name all we want to. Yeah. Because there's a time to understand whose rules we're following. Is it man or God? Now, in the few minutes we have, let me just flip through some verses about the term lawless. Because a lot of times we can understand law abiding or one thing by looking at its opposite. So the law abiding law abiding. Let's look at lawless. First John three four. Everyone who breaks sin, I'm sorry, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So you can go back to this Ten Commandments and say, I want you to understand to fear breaking these commands. Because sin is lawlessness. And if you sin, there's really bad consequences. Don't do that. When we've received Jesus and have the Holy Spirit in us, we now have the power not to sin. And every time we choose to sin, we're going back into slavery. That's Romans 6. Now, I don't want you to do that, God says. You can, but I don't want you to. Romans 6, 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. See, we have a choice as believers every day. We have the power not to sin now because of the Holy Spirit. We have the power not to sin. But we have the freedom to sin. 
or not, because now we have the power not to sin. So it's not that we have to not sin in order for God to accept us. He's already accepted us because of Jesus' death on the cross. It's that now He's given us the power not to sin and to walk in life. And we have the opportunity to walk in the resurrection life of Jesus. But man, those onions sure did taste good. We tend to want to go back to Egypt. Acts two twenty three. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. The actual crucifixion of Jesus was a lawless act. And that's interesting because what was the moral authority that they appealed to to crucify Jesus? The Jewish law and the Roman law, right? You committed blasphemy. He was convicted. And then Pilate says, you know, I, don't you realize I can, I can uh, crucify you if I want to? Raw authority. Well, this kind of reminds us of Machiavelli. Machiavelli wrote a book called The Prince. It's a very interesting book. I recommend it. Uh, Michael Franzese, the former mobster, said this was their Bible. They would study it like a manual on how to behave. Uh, Our friend John Agresto, who is president of St. John's, told us that the true motivation of Machiavelli was to expose the princes for what they were doing that was so immoral. And what Machiavelli does is he says, if you want to be a really good prince, a a pharaoh, a really good pharaoh, a really good earthly ruler, here's what you need to do. Look really moral on the outside, but never be moral. Pretend like you're telling the truth, but don't ever tell the truth. Uh, If you have an enemy, make sure you kill them, but don't make it look like you killed them. Because then you'd look bad. Because see, what you have to do is keep the consent of the governed Keep them on your side. And a matter of fact, have their station always improving just a little bit, and it keeps their morale. And have them look at you and, 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 and think you're really, really wise and really moral. But meanwhile, have these other people over here slaughtering people and lying and everything else, and you can say, ah, oh, what's wrong with you? Why did you do that? I'm exiling you. Wink, wink, wink. I'll make it worth your while, and we'll bring you back in, in a short time. That's the way you do it as a prince. Our... our our friend said that he, he did a fantastic thing. He got the church to ban that book, and that way everybody wanted to read it. <laughs> and what he was really saying, according to this scholar, was, uh, hey, this is the way human government operates, and it's really corrupt, and they can't keep it up if you don't consent to it, so don't consent to it. What was his, main, his true main point? And he knew if he actually said that, he'd have his head cut, chopped off. So instead what he said is, oh, the princes, they have a a divine right to do this. It's pretty clever. But this is a good contrast to the way the world does government versus the way the Bible does government. Listen to this from the parable of the tares, Matthew 13, 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and all who practice lawlessness, and cast them into the furnace of fire. The tares represent lawlessness. For 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with? Lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness? See, rule-making based on the power of man is lawlessness. And humble submission to the way God has set things up is the rule of law. Well, in our day, 
we have a spirit of lawlessness that's rising. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 talks about the Antichrist. You know what it calls him? The lawless one. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power signs and lying wonders. That's lawlessness. And we know from Revelation what the Antichrist will do. He will make a lot of laws. You have to have this mark in order to be able to buy and sell. You have to swear an oath of loyalty and worship the Antichrist in order to stay alive. Well, those are pretty draconian laws. But see, those are lawless because they don't line up with the law of God. And what does the law of God say? God gets to make the laws. He's the creator. He's the one that set up cause effect in the universe. And what He wants us to do is love one another, serve one another, respect one another, not envy, have strong families, have strong marriages. That's what He wants us to do. Titus 2.14 Jesus gave Himself for us. Why? That He might redeem us from every lawless deed. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-governance. Self-governance comes from within. When we submit ourselves to God's way and say, I may not understand it, but I'm going to do it anyway. What we're doing is setting up for a whole political life of benefit where people are serving one another and nothing but prosperity comes from it. The most important prosperity is spiritual prosperity. There's a really interesting book called The Fourth Great Awakening. And this secular historian goes through and shows the various spiritual awakenings that have happened in America. He actually says the Jesus movement and all the things that spun off of that was the start of a fourth great awakening, which is a very interesting perspective, and that we're still in it. And he says every one of the great awakenings that happened in previous times resulted in this huge expansion of material prosperity. Because, see... Slavery and oppression, tyranny, always brings material poverty. In Africa, the poor, I love the Africans. But every time they discover a new oil field or a new mine, I grieve for them because I know what's going to happen. They're gonna, the big men are going to put the armies, they're going to have a civil war until they figure out who controls that wealth. Because they're not self-governing. They have the Egyptian concept of governance. But... We have the fruit of the Spirit. We have the opportunity for self-control, for self-governance in our hearts. Well, I'll end with this. Romans 13 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And who is the ultimate authority in America? We the people. That's what the Constitution rests on. But today, we have a Supreme Court who said, it's the ultimate authority. Justice Scalia said in his dissent, you know, the most important question I can have is, who is my ruler? And today we know who it is. Any five of these Supreme Court justices. It's no longer we the people. It's these five people. Congress, 
has taken its representative authority to make laws on behalf of the people and delegated it to these administrative agencies. They make laws, they judge the laws, they enforce the laws, and they have no accountability to anybody. What is this? It's history. It's the reversion to the mean. It's what history has been all the way through. We're in aberration. This is what always happens. It's happened in America multiple times. Each time there's been a great awakening that has staved it off. Here's what you can do. You can pray for a great awakening. And you can cause a great awakening to happen in your hearts. When you exercise self-governance and love other people, you're a revolutionary. You are saying no to Satan's way of doing things. You're refusing to go back to Egypt. That's actually the most powerful thing we can do. There's also some political things we can do. We can be active citizens and get engaged in holding representatives accountable and and saying no to these other things that are the elevation of man's law above God's law. All those pale to having the rule of law in our hearts. And when we have the rule of law in our hearts and we ourselves are self-governing and we exercise that, that is actually what preserves society. Now, should we vote? Should we be engaged? Yeah, we should. I think that's clear. We are responsible for our government. But you know, God will tell you how to do that. What I'm sure of is we're to have this in our heart. Jesus said, in answer to Pilate, when Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? He said, Yes, but my kingdom's not of this world. So we're not to trust in Egypt. We are to infect our political system, but it's not the answer. We don't trust in men or political systems. What we trust in is God. Uh, we, we trust in God and we have self-governance emanating from our beings and we affect the way government happens. We don't trust in it. There's a huge difference between those two. If you find yourself getting demoralized, don't. Because we are not what the government says we are, we are what God says we are. And no matter what power the government says it has, it's all under God's authority. Okay? Self-governance, rule of law, first big pillar. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these, the power that you've given us, the resurrection power. I pray for every soul in here that they will live on a daily basis the resurrection power that you've so marvelously given us. And as Satan comes in and says, hey, this sin's great. Boy, the onions were great in Egypt and, 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 the, and you were safe in Egypt. Just help us see that for what it is, a lie and say no to that, and walk square into the path that you have for us, no matter how many giants and and no matter how many uh, tall city walls there are in our appearance. We know, God, that you have told us that you're there fighting for us if we'll follow you, and we can trust whatever the results are. I pray that you just give us that courage, give us the reliance on you, and help us infect our society in in a way that that uh, brings life to our country. I pray for our country, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you and that you'd heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen.